You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about current trends in the subscription-based tech world. To help us, we have with us Robbie Kelman back strategy consultant at Peninsula Strategies and author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction. Robbie, thank you so much for taking time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we always like to start with a kind of off the wall question. I'm curious of our guests, <laughs> um, people who know you largely through your work. I'd love to know something that you're passionate about that those that only know you from that perspective might be surprised to learn about you. Uh <laughs> Um, something that I'm that I'm passionate about that might surprise them. Um, I would say uh, that I've been a Girl Scout leader for the last 13 years, and that I'm pretty passionate about supporting girls who are leadership oriented from a young age. I love it. I love it. All right. Thank you for sharing that with us. And so, let's talk about the subscription economy. Just for uh, our listeners, I'm sure you are familiar with it, but would love to get your perspective on like how you would define it. What's the context? What exactly is that subscription-based economy? Yeah. So, you know, what I, you know, the, the last, certainly the last 10 years, we've seen a huge rise in the number of subscription-based businesses. And, and I even think of it one level bigger, which is, you know, membership economy, this, this rise in, in companies really treating their customers like members and focusing on the long-term relationship with them. So not just thinking about that initial transaction, but what happens after the moment of transaction in terms of expanding and lengthening that relationship with the customer. And, and in many cases, that mindset gives you permission to charge on a subscription basis because you have that that level of trust with the customer. And so when people engage in this, I mean, we've seen a huge uptick in it, right? It's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's here to stay. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how companies have to reorient themselves to this new reality or how they have to change the way they maybe operate and review even their own customers so that they can be successful with a subscription-based approach. Yeah, well, I would I would first say that for for any company, whether you're you're just starting out or whether you're transitioning from a more transactional business model to a subscription business model, I think the first step is to take a step back and say, what is the ongoing problem we're solving for our customer, or what is the ongoing goal that our customer has that we can continue to help them achieve, and how do we need to design our offering products and services in such a way as to align with that ongoing need. And if you if you start with that, you immediately start to see all the things that need to change, right? <laughs> of course, the thing that right, the thing that people jump to right away is let's slap some subscription pricing on whatever we already had, right? And we saw this in the enterprise software world, right? Like people were calling it SaaS and you're like that's not really SaaS. That's an enterprise product with a, you know, an annual you know, an annual price being attached, often an annual price being attached and a three-year term, which would make somebody say, boy, that really doesn't feel like a subscription at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, you know, co companies realized that if you were designing 
for subscription, you moved from, let's say, customization of software where you buy the software, own it outright and customize it for your unique use case to subscription software, which is configurable, but not customizable, usually easier to implement, easier to remove because subscription is kind of a lighter touch. And then you see, oh, and then if we do it, then we need to, we need to sell it differently. So instead of selling it with really, you know, high priced salespeople, you know, that go out the big hunter, you know, hunters who go out and bring back the woolly mammoth to the cave, (laughs) you know, drag the carcass and leave it for everybody else to deal with. I think we've all worked with those people at some point in our careers, moving to more of a, of a farming mentality, um, more about, you know, bringing in lots of customers and then growing them over time, right? This land and expand strategy. So so the point I'm trying to make is that when you start by saying, how do we align our goals with the ongoing goals of the customer, it starts to affect not just the pricing, but also the product itself, you know, the way the product is designed, the way the product is marketed, the way the product is sold, and then customer success versus customer support, the way that you treat customers after that initial transaction, which in the world of subscriptions, that moment of transaction is really the starting line for the relationship, not not the finish line <laughs> where all the high priced people go back out, you know, go back out into the woods to look for the next woolly mammoth. Right. That's when your high stakes, high, high paid teens really dig in and um, extend and expand that relationship. So we're I mean, we're essentially talking about almost a completely different organizational approach, which even you can even go higher and talk about the mindset of, of the company itself. Have you seen, I mean, it's, since it is relatively new, have you seen companies struggle to make the transition or is it easier for somebody coming in and building from the ground up? Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny. It's, it's easier to do it from the ground up, of course, because you have no baggage and the stakes are lower right? It's the same as saying, you know, if, if I'm in a race and, you know, you are, you know, you're sailing a cargo ship and I have a little speedboat, <laughs> I can probably go a lot faster than you, but I also am not carrying anything. I have nothing of value. So, you know, what I'm doing is less relevant than what you're doing. And I think it's sort of the same. It's, it's easier to start from the very beginning and have a clean slate, but, you know, the big, you know, opportunities are for these large companies that have deep relationships with their customers that have a strong brand to say, hey, let's take it to the next level. And let's think about, you know, our customers, you know, in many cases, they say, you know, our customers already love us, even though our business is transactional. What would it look like if we went a little further and solved the problem more fully? What if we better aligned our product offering with their actual ongoing needs? And there's, there's huge potential there. So um, it's not always easy. And as you point out, culture is probably the biggest challenge for existing organizations, but the value is, is really there. And if you go into it with your eyes open, it's not as hard as you think it is. It just requires an understanding that it's more than just repricing 
the products and services bundled as you've always bundled them. And and so with those companies, like I'm kind of thinking through this with the companies that already exist, they may already have a revenue stream that might help them mitigate the risk of making the changes, give them a little bit more room to fail without catastrophic consequences. Whereas if I'm a new one coming in, I may not know my customers as well. I still can design it from the ground up so I don't have to have the same internal cultural battles that I'm going to have to have when I make these changes. And, and I'm wondering if they're changing, if an existing company making the change, does it change? Because you mentioned the difference between farming and, and the hunting and then the importance of customer success. Does it change the skill sets that they're looking for in individuals? And does that create a friction point for the organization? Yeah, absolutely. And and when I think about, you know, I, I like that you're sort of focusing in on this cultural issue and, uh, you know, what changes in terms of skill set, mindset, these kind of softer things that often companies don't don't consider. I think about, you know, there are the um, what I sometimes call the left brain issues, right? I don't have the skill set to sell in that way to, I don't know what it means to be in customer success versus customer support. What are the skills I need? I don't know which metrics to track to understand if a customer is likely to cancel or not. Um, Those are things that can be taught. It's not always easy to do that, but it's, you know, there's a clear path to say, okay, you need this skill. Here's how you develop the skill. You need to understand this metric. I'll explain this metric. But I think what's harder, what's more insidious is when people on the team are afraid when they when they recognize that their role is going to change and they don't want it to change um, and in some cases that fear is totally justified right if i am one of those big game hunters and i can see the writing on the wall that we're moving to um, an inside sales model because the product the subscription based product is a lot easier to sell than you know the custom solutions i was offering before and I see how they're hiring all of these, you know, less experienced, less expensive salespeople. I wonder, is there going to be a role for me? So I might want to drag my feet a little bit. I may not support this transformation. I want to make it as difficult as possible because I worry about my own livelihood. So I think what's really important is to be, you know, when you're developing the strategy, to be really clear on who are going to be the winners and losers? Who's going to have to deal with the most change, both on the customer side and on the employee side, so that at least you know what you're dealing with. <laughs> and then and then you can decide how you want to deal with it, but at least name the problem, right? right? Yeah, it, it's going to be worse for you, Robbie, who's you know been used to selling seven-figure consulting engagements now that we're selling a you know a pre-built app for $50,000 a year we might not need you or your role is going to change a huge amount you're going to be managing a big team instead of being an individual contributor that's very well paid is that something that's interested in, to you Robbie <laughs> <laughs> you know and i say maybe no maybe i'll go somewhere else or yeah that might be a really interesting um, new new role for me but but be honest about what's going to happen right well it requires i mean a change management approach. First, they need to be aware that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, "Hey, I want catastrophic change in my life today." Uh, you know, and so <laughs> never heard that. that. No, nobody says that, right? So they they need to be looking at it. I mean, it's, you're talking about a significant change, and I'm curious: Have you seen organizations attempt it and stumble? Uh, versus what it looks like when they attempt it and are successful, and you don't have to name names of companies if you don't want to. But I'm just curious what it what it looks like. How would a company know they're heading down the path of making the change 
to this subscription approach and they're doing it well versus not so well. Like, you know, there are early warning signs they should be looking for, things they should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think the signs that it's not going well, um, and and it, of course it depends on the organization. Um, one, you know, when it, let me let me start with when it goes well. When it goes well, usually what happens is this: um, company decides they want to experiment with subscriptions or membership or a recurring revenue relationship. Um, they set aside a team off in the corner of the organization rather than saying we're going to do a wholesale change, you know, immediately. They give that team some runway to experiment. The team decides all the, you know, makes a list of all the things they need to learn before we have confidence to flip the switch in the whole organization. And then they map out a plan. We're going to learn this, and then we're going to learn this, and then we're going to learn this, and then we're going to learn this. And when we have confidence about those things, that's when we're going to move this to core. We're going to move this to how we do business. And that's when we're going to share it with the rest of the organization and start thinking about infrastructure, corporate culture, training, new roles, operationalizing this new way of doing things. But I call it kind of learning and leverage. What do you need to learn in order to have the leverage to get the board support, to get your partnership support, to get support from other parts of the of the organization? One example on the consumer side um, that I wrote about in my book, uh, Electronic Arts, the video game company, you know, they've known for a long time that subscriptions were going to be a key part of their long-term strategy. But, you know, they started about, I think it's been about six or seven years that they've been experimenting with subscriptions. And they've tried things like, you know, they started with what they call their catalog games, their, their old games, right? They weren't going to put their new games into a subscription because the risk was much higher. Right. They started with their PC games, the games that you play on the computer, as opposed to their console games, you know, the games you play on your on your PlayStation. And that was because the PlayStation, that's higher stakes, bigger segment. Um, and they experimented in different small markets, discrete markets. And as they gained confidence about how behavior changes, you know, do people who buy the subscription, who subscribe also continue to pay for boxed games or do they stop? Which customers do it? Are the, the, the customers that are buying, you know, two or three boxed games a year that move to subscription or the customers that were, you know, not buying games? Are they new customers? Once they started to learn some of those things, they had a lot more confidence when it came time to say, you know what, we're going to have subscription, which they now do for our frontline titles, our new titles, and we're going to make it available through, you know, all of the consoles and we're going to make it available globally, right? So that's how you do it right. Companies that do it wrong don't experiment, expect results too quickly. <laughs> um, often, I mean, I, I've talked to more C-suite teams than I care to admit that have said, we need some subscription revenue so we can get a better valuation slash we need some subscription revenue because I get a big bonus <laughs> if I can show subscription revenue by the end of the calendar year, after which point I'm cutting out of here and going to work somewhere else. That's where you see the disasters, right? Because they're not really committed to this long-term this long-term journey. And, and it's it's really interesting, the, the learning part, right? The focus on what do I know about my buyer behavior, that relationship I have. Even those companies 
And it's unfortunate, but even some of those companies that think, you know, hey, our customers love us, when you really dig in, they don't really have, they haven't, don't have any data on why, or don't understand the data on why they're saying that or how the customers are behaving. So it takes really taking that step forward to understand the consumer behavior of the individual that you're, or individuals that you're trying to switch to that subscription model. Which is the same thing we've been hearing ad nauseum for years. You need to know your buyer. This seems like if you don't know that, if you if you don't have an understanding of that, that's going to be a red flag, which has ramifications not only for the revenue, but the individuals in the company, the brand, valuations for those that are looking to jump. I mean, are there ways that they should go about collecting data or specific metrics that they should be looking at as they're going through this learning phase? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's so many, and it's it's great that you that you're bringing this up. I, I think, you know, a lot of companies that do know their buyers well understand what makes the buyer buy, but what they don't understand is who uses the product and how they get value from that product when they've already bought it. So, you know, if I buy a Lamborghini and drive it off the showroom floor, and then I never take it out of first gear. The Lamborghini, you know, dealer doesn't really care, right? Because they've got my money already, <laughs> right? But if if I subscribe to that same automobile, and I don't, you know, and I bought, I subscribed because I wanted to feel the wind in my hair and drive one of the fastest machines, you know, available on the open road, and I say, you know, it goes so slowly, it, it, it's really uncomfortable to drive. I'm returning it to you. I'm canceling my subscription, and they're like, Robbie, you never took the car out of first gear. Right then they say it becomes their responsibility to help me get value. And businesses that are really good at subscription, that are really good at recurring revenue, do not treat all customers the same. So acquisition is different, right? They don't just want to acquire anybody. They want to acquire people who are going to get value, recognize that value, and continue paying, right? And expand the relationship. So you become much choosier at the front end about who you even sell to. And then you have a much better understanding, not just of what are those acquisition benefits, what are the reasons that somebody buys, which most salespeople really understand, right? If I talk about this new and improved, if I talk about that feature, I know that's gonna move somebody to buy now. But you also need to know about the retention benefits and the engagement benefits and the expansion benefits that are going to drive and deepen the relationship over time. And so a lot of companies don't know anything about that which features are being used, how they're being used, how the land and expand, which people talk about all the time, how does that work? What is it word of mouth? Is it a viral organic function where I send you an expense report and you see that I'm using some piece of software and ask if you can use it in your department too, right? I mean, how do things grow and how do, how do people decide I'm using one feature now, I'm using two features, now you can't pull it out of my hands you know, if you tried, I'd quit my job if you took it away. I think those kinds of of questions, really understanding that, um, becomes becomes really important. And are there ways that companies should go about? I mean, that you're, we're talking about a lot of data, a lot of points of um, to be explored in that behavioral paradigm that may not necessarily be as easy to track as somebody who's using an iPhone and every click can you know. Know, you know what they're doing and where they're going. Yeah. So we're talking about that combination of, you know, if the service is digital, I said the combination of digital and, and humanity, how, how do companies go about 
getting that data or understanding that in a way that they can trust the results that they're getting with, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is without applying a bias to the research that they're doing, how do they do that actively? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, Chad, I've, I've worked with over a hundred companies across a really wide range of industries um, and company sizes. And some of them, you know, I've worked with Microsoft, right? Their data would make your head spin. <laughs> Google, their data. I mean, they have so much data, right? They can tell you, you know, wow, Robbie, Robbie took, you know, her, she was taking five breaths a minute for the first couple of minutes, and then she was taking seven breaths and we noticed it, you know, we know exactly what she's doing. But I also work with, you know, startups where they don't have any data. And also, I mean, we haven't talked much about this, but there are, you know, physical products where you don't get any data, right? If, um, you know, if I buy a truck from you or, um, if I buy uh, supplies from you, you know, or or professional services, you know, you don't necessarily know how that's being received on the other side. So one of the things I really encourage organizations to do is to think about, you know, how do you mitigate risk? So instead of saying, how do you get the best, you know, I need this data, say, well, I'm worried about this. You know, I have this question. I don't understand. Start by asking, right? Like, I'm a big fan of just you know, qualitative, well-structured validation interviews um, to just understand where you are, getting really clear on which hypothesis you want to test. And yeah, if you have great data, wonderful. But a lot of organizations don't have perfect data. And, you know, number one, that shouldn't prevent you from asking good questions. And number two, it might mean that you want to change the way you build your products. So, you know, with this example, let's say, of heavy equipment, trucks and threshers and crushers and uh, cranes and and other you know machinery that you use for for you know building or, or agriculture you know increasingly they're using sensors they're using uh, software they're they're embedding software into their into their products so that they do get better data and so that their product can better solve the full problem if I'm a farmer, Right, I I buy a tractor not because I want to have a tractor, but because I want to have a successful <laughs> crop this year. And the closer, right, and the closer you can get to helping them have a successful crop, saying I'm not just going to sell you this this tractor, but I'm also going to help you know when and how to use the tractor to have the best possible crop. Right, that becomes more valuable. Right, if I'm using sensor data, I'm telling you, wow, the the, the the water in the soil is very high today. It's not a good day for using that tractor or the temperature is too hot or, you know, let's map out. You have one person on your team that knows how to use that crane. You have three spots that you need to use the crane today at different edges of the construction site. Let's map out the plan for the day so that you get the most value from your investment with our company. That's how organizations can move toward justifying subscription uh, pricing. They're optimizing the value they provide in an ongoing way. I love it. That That is a great point. So I want to pivot here just a little bit. And I, I need to ask, what was the inspiration and the journey that led you to <laughs> tackle writing not just one, but two books? Well, where did that where did that passion <laughs> come? I mean, that's no small task. One's no small task, like let alone too, but I'm just curious where the inspiration came from that lit the fire to better reality. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's a couple of different ways I can answer that. And it's kind of fun to think about for me. Um, you know, one of them is sort of the more straightforward thing, which is as an independent consultant, it's really important that you have 
you know, if you don't want to just be what I think of as a contractor, that is arms and legs that subs in when a company doesn't have enough, enough people on the team, you want to, you want to be known for your expertise. You actually need to develop expertise. And often the way you demonstrate that expertise is with a one pound business card, you know, a book, (laughs) right. And you say, my name's Robbie, and this is what I believe, thunk. (laughs) And if you like it and you agree with it, maybe you want to work with me. And if you don't like it, we won't waste, you know, let's not waste time getting to, getting to together. Um, so that's one reason is that I, I wanted to demonstrate my knowledge and the, the deep work I had done in this very narrow space of, of subscriptions. The other thing is I was an English major in college. Uh-huh. So, you know, little shout out to all the liberal arts people out there. Yep. You know, I, I spent a lot of time writing and I love to write and I love to read. And so for me, even though writing the books was hard it was very rewarding. Um, it, it was using a, a part of my brain and, and a skill set that I'd kind of set aside for a long time. So I, I, I found that I, I really enjoyed um, having time every day to write. And um, it really added, you know, I think a lot about kind of your, your portfolio of activities um, that you do in a day and, you know, being less focused on, you know, do I love my job and do I get everything I need from my job? But, you know, in the bundle of activities I do each day, am I doing things that are meaningful to me? Am I, am I thinking creatively? Am I connecting with people? Am I laughing? Am I making money? Am I, you know, wh- whatever the, the things are that are important to you, um, you know, trying to optimize your days so that you get a nice mix of the things that, that are important to you. I love it. So let's uh, change the direction here again a little bit. We ask all of our guests standard questions towards the end of each interview. And the first is simply as a you know independent consultant, that means you're a revenue executive yourself and people are probably trying to sell you things. And I'm always curious to know when somebody doesn't have a referral into you, um, somebody's trying to capture your attention and earn the right to time on your calendar to have a discussion, what works best? I mean, I think like, like many people, demonstration that they know who I am that they understand my business and usually a specific offer sort of this is this is something I can help you with so I understand where they're coming from and then you know and I know everybody's different about what what turns them on or turns them off about you know sales outreach but for me I always appreciate it when they say something like I'm not sure you're a perfect fit for what we have to offer but I will do my best to be helpful in my area of expertise whether or not this results in a sale, um, you know, something like that. That's how I do my own selling, to be honest. But, you know, always focusing, you know, if a salesperson is focusing on providing me with value and whether or not I buy from them, I'm much more likely to want to spend time with them and, and to like them. And, you know, a lot of this comes down to, do I like this? I mean, I notice all the time, <laughs> it's not rational, but if somebody, if I, if somebody does something and it really turns me off, like they, they say, Robbie, you definitely need this and, you know, it's time sensitive or Robbie, I looked at your website and I noticed that you don't seem to have um, a great source for janitorial services, which seems like a huge mistake. You know, that, that number one shows that they don't understand my business because I don't have any need for janitorial service. And second, um, it's very rude, right? It's very condescending. Um, and that, at least for me, is, is a big turnoff. Oh, I love it. Right. And so 
Well, last question, we call it our acceleration insight. And based on all of your expertise and your deep knowledge, if there was one thing you could tell companies that were getting ready to make the transition to subscription economy, just one piece of advice, that's all you could give them. And if they listened to it, you think would put them on the path to success, what would it be and why? Understand the ongoing goal of your customer and the ongoing problem they're solving and align your business to being their preferred source for that for the long term. I love it. You don't even need to do subscription pricing. <laughs> Just focus on aligning what you do with an ongoing goal. I, funny, funny story. Um, when I was when I was just getting started writing my first book, uh, I talked to uh, one of the founders of of LinkedIn, and part of their origin story is that you know these guys were always focused on long term relationships, building trust with their customers, and so on. But the first company that they founded was called SocialNet, and it was a dating site. <laughs> And <laughs> so you imagine they have this long-term focus. We're going to be with you forever, but they have this promise that they're making for a very, hopefully short-term <laughs> deliverable, right? If you don't find your true love in, you know, let's say six months of being in a dating site, you're going to look elsewhere most likely. And once you find that true love, you know, you better not be back <laughs> on the dating site in the dating pool, right? And so they said, the next time we start a business, we're going to pick something where that long-term prop, where that problem or that goal is a long-term one, not a six-month one. And so they picked careers, as we all know, and the rest is history. Yeah, that is a great story. All right, Robin. So uh, somebody wants to talk to you more about this topic, find out more about uh, you or engage your services. Where would you prefer we send them? You can come to my website, RobbieKelmanBaxter.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. And do you have a preferred destination where you want us to send for the books? Well, <laughs> your favorite independent bookstore would be my first choice, um, but you can pretty much find the books wherever books are sold in, in all different formats, audio, um, Kindle, and print. And I second that. Go to your independent bookstore as, as an English major, as an undergrad myself, a uh, big supporter of those. Yeah, so I knew I liked you. I like, that, <laughs> I like that call out, Robbie. So I want to thank you so much for taking time and joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, great talking to you too, Chad. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. You know the drill. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. Go buy the books at an independent independent bookstore and if what you hear leave us a review on itunes until next time we at value selling associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success you've been listening to the b2b revenue executive experience to ensure that you never miss an episode subscribe to the show on itunes or your favorite podcast player thank you so much for listening until next time